0: Hey now, say now, you're tuned in to the Wake Up and Win podcast, and I am your host, Devon Pouncy. I am here in the beautiful city of Portland, Oregon, and we got two very special guests on the line today. The first one joining us from Austin, Texas. She's a freelance journalist. She is the author of the book, Unsportsmanlike Conduct, The Politics of College Football and Rape. Um, she's somebody that you've probably seen on your timeline here or there if you're a real fan of sports, because... She's definitely worth the follow. Jessica Luther, thank you so much for joining us and coming back to the Wake Up and Win podcast because you've actually been here before.
1: I have. It's always a pleasure to be here with you.
0: Thank you. Thank you. And also we have a sports writer for The Athletic. She also hosts The Lead, which is The Athletic's um, daily sports news podcast. Um, And both of these women here are the co-authors of the new smash hit book, Loving Sports When They Don't, when they Don't Love You Back, Kavita Davidson. So glad to meet you. So glad you could be here. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having us on. Absolutely. So first off, I got to apologize to you guys and also kind of express some gratitude all wrapped up in one here because last week when I reached out to your publicist, Joel, um, I sent out some days that I would be available for you all to come here and join me on the show. And uh, I didn't quite realize when I sent that availability that today would be a holiday. (laughs) It's Labor Day, and so I got you two over here working on a Labor Day, which I do not like, and I totally apologize for that. Jessica, I know you live in Texas, which is, famously known for its barbecue. So I hope I'm not interrupting one of the greatest barbecue plates you've ever had. Here.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, not, not at this point. Quarantine has severely hurt my fooding. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm glad to hear that. But like I said, also at the same time, I am very grateful because you are willing to take some time out of your holiday to come and join me here on the Wake Up and Win podcast. So that's very crucial. Um, as I mentioned before, you two both published a book that was released last week, Loving Sports When They Don't Love You Back. Um, First and foremost, congratulations on that. I know there was a lot of hard work, time and effort put into that. So congratulations. Thank Thank you you so much. And also, you know, life sometimes is about journeys and destinations. And last week, I felt like I watched you two reach a destination on Instagram Live when y'all pop champagne like y'all won a championship game (laughs) because obviously your book gets released, right? We were a little
2: bit extra. It's true. uh, A
0: little bit (laughs) I'm extra sometimes. It's like that around here. But but anywho, you got to celebrate on Instagram Live together. And, you know, some people are obsessed with the destination, even though they may not necessarily – particularly like the journey. Like I see folks traveling to Cancun and Tulum and all these other ci- other cities that <laughs> folks are traveling to. And it's like, they may not necessarily like to get on the plane, but the destination is what it's all about. But then you have others that feel as if the journey is what it, everything is all about. And re- once you get to that destination, you get to really kind of feel the reward from the journey and all the work that you put in to get to that particular point. So I want to hear about the journey for you two here. How did you two meet? How did you come up with this concept for this book? How did that all come together before we dig into some of the contents within the book?
2: So I'll tell you how we met and then Jessica can tell you how we came up with the book is how we've been splitting this up, right? (laughs) (laughs) Jessica and I met on Twitter, which I love saying because Twitter is such a cesspool, but it is actually good for some things. And finding communities is one of those things. So I think Jessica and I started writing about sports probably around the same time or within a couple of years of each other. And we had the same kind of outlook. We always covered the intersection of sports and culture and politics and gender, race and that kind of thing. Um, And just really admired each other's work. Um, And, you know, the community of women sports writers is very tight knit. (laughs) We're very small. (laughs) Um, And, uh, you know... I think that, like, you know, we just really, um, you know, read the same things. We wrote similarly, um, especially when it comes to sports and um, and gendered violence. Um, and I think we actually never met in person until we had already signed a book deal together. Oh, wow. <laughs> I think that's right. It's hard to remember. Um, and I think that was either when you came to New York or when I was in Austin for South By. I can't remember. But Yeah. 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 I can't remember either. I mean, you were in New York for your first book tour.
1: Yeah. And I did. Yeah. I can't remember. I can't remember yesterday at this point. As Kavitha (laughs) said earlier today, time is a flat circle now and nothing matters. So yeah. And then the book itself, again, it's hard to remember exactly. I had a friend in town who thought, who kind of gave me this broad idea of writing a book on sports and culture and all these different issues. And he thought it would be interesting if I, if I worked on that and it kind of, you know, burrows in your brain, that sort of thing. And then Kafita and I at some point we we're having a we we're chatting or texting or something about those annoying posts that come out normally around the Super Bowl, every once in a while you see them at other times that are written for women who know nothing about sports. And it's like how to talk to your boyfriend when you don't know anything about football or how to survive a Super Bowl party. And they're always super condescending and they have a very strict idea, narrow idea of who is a sports fan. And it's like, we obviously don't look like however they imagine a sports fan to be. And so at some point we were joking about writing sort of the opposite of that. Like I live with someone and I have for, I've been with my husband for over 20 years, who doesn't care very much at all about sports. And so writing sort of the opposite of that, like what to do when your boyfriend can't talk to you about sports. I like it. Uh, Yeah. And so the original idea was pretty snarky and we wanted to, um, joke a lot about it and then we took the idea to the university of texas press and we have this we had an amazing editor casey Cottrell. we just can't talk enough nice things about him and casey sort of groomed the project into the much more serious (laughs) version i mean i don't think it's overly serious i think our voices and our humor come through but it's definitely much more than just some snark
0: (laughs) yeah absolutely now I don't know if this was intentional or coincidental, but um, as I got into the book a little bit, the very first chapter was titled Watching Football When We Know Even a Little About Brain Trauma. Um, Obviously, you released your book last week, September 1st, I believe it was, um, and you've got the NFL starting up here really soon. Um, Was it intentional to... Get after the football fans first and foremost, um, because you knew you might have been releasing around this time. And even beyond that, um, what should football fans be thinking about based on some of the things you laid out in the book as we are entering upon a new season here?
1: Gosh, I wish we had been that intentional about that, <laughs> that <laughs> chapter being first for that reason. I, I
2: think don't think it, the placement of the chapter was intentional, but definitely like releasing the book in September was, I'm pretty sure, with right. an eye toward the NFL season, even like in a yeah. normal non pandemic year. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's almost four years to the day of when my first book came out. Like, I, there, you know, I think oh, wow. it makes sense to come out in September. But yeah, I mean, we had, because it was a University of Texas uh, press. It's a university press, so they actually sent it out, and it was read by two anonymous readers, and we got feedback, and they both responded really well to that chapter, so it made sense to sort of lead off. And I also think it functions—I don't think we've thought of this, but now that we've done all these interviews and had to talk about the book this way, it's a topic that isn't tied to someone's particular identity, so it's not about someone— in a marginalized group necessarily, right? It's like a bigger issue within sport that lots of people have to grapple with as sports fans. So it makes a good sort of intro into the book. So yeah, I don't, yeah, it's not tied to NFL. It is interesting. The other thing that came out recently that's related to all lots of things we write about is that there um, are black retired football players who are talking about the racist way in which the money is being uh, given out to former players, because it's like the medical information that it's all based on that itself is racist. So then it's like who actually, who's harmed the most. And so who's actually getting money from the concussion settlement. Uh, so these things keep going. Um, it's what the other thing I'll say is it's so funny to think of this book as timely because back in March, we like freaked out. We honestly, really? sports came to a halt the day after the NBA shutdown, we had like a panic phone call or like this book is going to be wrong and it's not going to have anything to do with anything at the time that it comes out. Like, how can we, how could we have written a book pre COVID that's coming out? We didn't know where we were going to be. In September, I texted so. Jess,
2: I texted Jessica like six times in the first like four days after Rudy Gobert <laughs> tested positive. And yeah. I definitely like, we definitely called Casey our publisher a, a ton. Um, just in a panic, like Jessica said, because, I mean, listen, we didn't know if we would ever have sports back, first of all, right? We also didn't know if it was irresponsible to be writing a book about our grievances with sports when sports were canceled because – you know thousands of people were dying like you know there's all kinds of things and then just like the timing of it right like how relevant how much would people want to talk about some of these issues that we that we discuss in the book if there are no sports going on and if there's you know this larger crisis that we're going through and Man, were we wrong with all of those.
1: Yeah, (laughs) which just goes to show you like how different, like the roller coaster we've all been on. I do want to answer your question about like what people should think about brain trauma within sports, especially football fans. And I think my biggest takeaway from doing this chapter, talking to people and researching and stuff is that we don't actually know a ton. Like we know a fair amount about CTE and brain trauma, but we don't actually know a whole lot. And so one thing is to, Kavitha's been saying this a lot, but like we need to, like withholding judgment on the decisions people are making because, and this especially came through for me. I interviewed a professor in Canada who worked with CFL. She and um, studied the wives of CFL players, Canadian Football League players, and sort of the decisions that they were making. And she kept saying to me, just over and over, like these are laborers, like these are workers making tough decisions. This is a thing that they've worked for their whole lives. So they're supporting their families, and we don't know a ton about these issues and what it will mean for each individual person. They can't predict this stuff. So they're making the best choices that they know how to make in the moment. And, and to give them space for that. And like, I interviewed our friend, Joel Anderson, who used to play football. And I asked him like, well, would you go back and not play football again? Now that you know that this is a potential outcome in your life. And he said, no, like he would totally play football again. It gave him all this great stuff. And yeah, it's scary to think about the outcome of it possibly but he he knows for sure what football gave him. And so I don't know, my, my biggest takeaway with that chapter was like, we don't know a ton. And it's really easy when you're not the one making that decision to tell people what they should and shouldn't be doing and how to feel about all those things.
2: Yeah. I think that that's a, a common thing um, throughout the book is that we learned, I'm a super opinionated and judgmental person. I love and, it. <laughs>
0: here for it, here for it.
2: And and we learned in doing all these interviews, talking to all of these fans, not to be that judgmental and that there really isn't a right answer or a right way to deal with these internal conflicts that we have. Um, and we know that because we have these conflicts. We are sports fans, right? Um, to Jessica's point that we just don't know a ton, it really is... Like that is, it's such a takeaway about how little about brain trauma we really do know. And in part, that is because of obstructionism by the NFL to do this research. Um, my mother is a neuropathologist and she could tell you that the amount of research that has been conducted in the last 10, 15 years is so concentrated because the NFL kind of had to stop blocking that kind of work from being done. and. Also to Jessica's point, you know, she mentioned Joel and again, absolutely no judgment for players who, who want to play, who still want to play, knowing even a little bit about what it does to their brains or what it could do to their brains. But what we have also been seeing this wave of in the last five to 10 years is... The tiniest amount that we do know has totally shifted how players approach their own bodies and their brains. And you start seeing players retiring from the NFL early um, because of that. So, yeah, I mean, not being judgmental is a huge thing, but being able to make those decisions in an informed way, you know, that's really the key here. How much knowledge and how much information are we giving players to to, to to make those tough calls?
1: I would say the scariest thing for me around brain trauma is youth sports. Yeah. And like, if we're gonna, we should be worried about everyone's brains all the time. That's for sure. But Absolutely. if we're going to take a really critical eye to it, that's where we really should be starting is with youth because uh, Kathleen Baczynski, she just wrote a whole book on on this. Um, and, it, and she just, the numbers are staggering. When you think about like how many people play professional football in the world versus like how many children play tackle football like again like even just pure numbers wise the place to really be thinking about this is around the youth and we don't have again we just don't have a ton of data there and that's i think that's the one that gets me the most when i think about all these children and how we don't know a lot about that yet that's that's scary
0: yeah now jessica i've heard you say on a few different platforms that you actually do not watch football any longer, um, would you say that the brain trauma is the reason for that, or what reasons don't you watch football anymore?
1: Yeah, that's a big one. Uh, brains and bodies of the players, especially college ball. College ball was always my the sport that I watched the most growing up, yeah. and care and cared about until maybe like seven or eight years ago, the most. And I, it's definitely brains and bodies knowing that we don't have universal health care in this country, so a lot of those players aren't going to. It's not like the university supporting them no matter what happens to them. Anytime, like God, anytime you see, especially you see it mostly with basketball, but like when they break their leg in the middle, who was yeah. the oh, who was the catcher for Alabama who made that amazing catch and then like broke his his leg in half? And I was like, he's never gonna like Alabama's not gonna pay for that leg for the rest of his life and anything else that comes from it. That just Mm, that bothers me. I have trouble, again, college ball. I have trouble with the fact that players aren't paid. And then anything, you know, a lot of it's around my work on gendered violence Yeah, within college athletics, football specifically. It's kind of all of that at once. I mean, it it didn't help me that when I did tune into the national championship game this year that Trump came out in his, like, propaganda parade at the beginning. Like, that doesn't, yeah. doesn't make me the politics of the coaches often – turn me off from the sport (laughs) so it's kind of a combo of that and then I just it just kind of bleeds into the NFL for me I they have a I'm not a fan of the league itself uh, the people who run it so uh, once I gave up college ball which I'll mention Joel again when I when I told Joel that I was going to stop watching college ball he was like don't let them win they're winning and I was like yeah they won (laughs) it's it's not happening for me anymore so it's it's definitely a whole mix of things. It wasn't just one thing. But you know, I say all of that. But then, if I watch a good game and the playoffs or something like, I will, I will get right into it again. I, all those things. It's, it's like natural. A, it,
0: it's natural yeah, in a it's it instinctive. it just comes
2: out. Yeah. yeah,
0: absolutely. I mean,
2: and and that's the. I know that Jessica said that. Her not watching football anymore is a mix of things. The concussion thing, in particular, though, of all of the of all of the issues that we talk about in this book, that is the only thing that isn't actually fixable. You know what I mean? Like we can fix racism. I think we can fix sexism. We can fix homophobia. I mean, we can, right? Like these are fixable things. But there is no such thing as safe football. You know, yeah. um, and and that. That is okay, I guess. You know, like that's not for me to say for fans that that is not okay. But that is the one thing that we can't actually change. Yeah, I think that- I think it's
1: hard too because for like boxing or hockey or football, these places where brain trauma is specifically acute or that we see it a lot- So much of that that we enjoy as fans, and it's hard to say this out loud, is that it's brutal. Yeah, We enjoy the brutality, the gladiators, all those words that we have for them. And so then when this is one of the reasons this topic is really hard for people because so much of what we talk about in the book are things people don't really want to talk about a lot of the time when they just want to watch their sports. And the fact that if you acknowledge that brain trauma is a problem and you acknowledge, like Kavitha said, that there's not much you can do to fix that within the game, then you're like admitting that you're willing to watch it because you're okay with this kind of brutality. And that, I don't know that's hard.
0: Yeah, absolutely. No, it's definitely a nuanced conversation there. And that's what I love about this book and how you all got into it and broke it down. And you could express, you know, you're obviously sports fans yourself, you wouldn't get into this profession or career if you weren't sports fans. And so even though you do a lot of critical work, I think it's a really good balance of both of you acknowledging sort of both sides of the game individually and generally. Um, but I want for to get,
2: acknowledging that, by the way, I feel like yeah. in every interview that we do, Jessica and I have to make it really clear that we're sports fans. And it's always that obvious, like, why would we do this for a living if we didn't love yeah, sports? I, right? I mean, it's
0: two plus <laughs> two still equals four. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I want to talk about what I would say was my favorite chapter in the book. And it was the chapter titled watching women's basketball when people tell you you're the only one. Um, There was a statement in there in particular that popped out at me. It was the statement from Laisha Clarendon in the 2016 ESPN column um, where she said, people don't tune into the NBA for the sole purpose of watching dunks. Um, She went on to say, because it's embedded in our culture to do so, men's sports have such an immense platform for visibility that even the utility guy on the best teams is revered. They watch because it's the cool thing to do. We don't give women women sports the space to be cool. Um, can you two kind of elaborate on that statement and why it was necessary to be in this book? Because um, you know, based on just the overall point that you were getting at in that chapter, essentially.
2: I think you know, with the WNBA, and Jessica says this all the time. You're you're getting the same racism that you're getting when you know you you see people saying things about NBA players, but you're also getting sexism and you're also getting homophobia. And it was important for us to include that in the book um, and using the WNBA as a lens really for all women's sports, because you could take so much of what we've written in that chapter and apply it to women's hockey softball um you know going going down the line um and and just there was another quote in there i can't remember if it was Laisha or who it was but basically you know she said the struggle around promoting women's sports and and getting respect and attention for women's sports is like if you've ever bought a pair of scissors and you need a pair of scissors to open the, the scissors. Oh, that right? was Amani. That B. was Amani. Uh, mm-hmm. Which amazing Amani is incredible. <laughs> but it's the perfect analogy because yeah. you know when we fail to promote women's sports, obviously women's sports aren't going to be as successful as, as big revenue generators, and it's this vicious cycle. And nobody ever stops to really examine the mechanics of that cycle because it's just a given that women's sports suck or that nobody wants to watch women play play sports, right? Because that's that's just the go-to um, state of things that we're supposed to accept in, in society. And, you know, so it was important to us to just completely turn that on its head because it's not true. Um, and honestly, we're seeing that right now. I mean, we're seeing this surge of women's soccer and women's basketball. And listen, we, the greatest tennis player of all time is a woman. And we're, we're lucky that she's now made it through to the quarterfinals, we can say. (laughs) But I think especially with COVID, with the quarantine, it's, you know, I was afraid of what a sports shutdown would mean for the momentum that women's sports had really started to build by, you know, the beginning of this year. And, and I, you know, the NWSL was the first sport to come back, right? And even though Sabrina Ionescu is, is injured, the WNBA is having this surge right now in popularity. And I think what, I hate to kind of say it this way, but, you know, when people didn't have any sports, they realized just how stupid it was to downplay the importance of women's sports. Yeah. Like, like I'm sorry. Like, listen, Before. we were all watching a horse-, horse- competition on espn (laughs) in april or whatever the hell that was right so you're gonna watch you're gonna watch backyard zoom horse instead of like the best women's basketball players on the planet stop it yeah and i think this is one of those
1: chapters where it really is part of this book project was to have other fans that feel like us feel seen Like we're here too. Like that struggle that you have is a struggle that we have, and this chapter is definitely that, right? This idea that people are telling you no one else cares about the sport, and we're like, no, no, we're here. We we care about this, and actually, so do a ton of other people. And so it was really important to us to one just address sexism in sport in a really concrete way. And one thing about the W is it's the longest the longest, what's the right word here? It's been around the longest of all the professional women's leagues. And it's what, 23, 24 years, like it's a substantial amount of time at this point. So it makes a good example for that. There is longevity in this and that there really is a future. And the other thing I always like to say about Leisha's, I love them. Leisha is so great. Um, That quote is so perfect because I feel like there's this osmosis that happens with men's sports. So like men's sports are just around. Like, so even if I'm not watching the NFL, if I'm not yeah. taking, if I'm not paying a lot of attention to the NBA, I still kind of understand what's happening. Like I knew I did not watch last night, but I knew that Giannis had sprained his ankle. Yeah. But I can't actually tell you how I know that I must've seen it on Twitter. Must Like, but I can't pinpoint for you how I know that thing that I know right now so there's this way that with men's sports and it's that's a really hard thing to put your finger directly on right I just know stuff about it because of the way that it exists in our culture whereas for women's sports it's better I like now you can really curate social media feeds I have really done a good job myself personally of surrounding myself by other people who love women's sports and so I get a lot more of that information now than I ever did before. And that's wonderful, but it's still work in a way that you don't have to do with men's sports.
0: Absolutely. Now I, I want to ask more about some of the contents in this book and we'll get there. But before we do that, I want to talk about Jessica Luther, the person in the sports fan, Kavita Davidson, the person in the sports fan, because this book to me was sort of like a layout of, a moral compass for sports fans in particular, like it almost could have been looked at as like a religious book for sports fans. If you have, you know, things that you want to know more about and understand as far as, you know, maybe certain details are concerned or just simple morality is concerned. This is a book that I think you can go to to kind of guide you through that. Um, but with that being said, for you to, when is a time as a sports fan that you actually felt like you have gone out of out of your moral compass and you had to maybe either reel yourself back in or you're still out there outside of that moral compass, but you're kind of struggling with these, you know, both elements of the game, one you being a fan and other sort of the critical element that you may not necessarily rock with.
1: Mm, this is a good one. I feel like I I had one earlier this summer because when the WNBA uh when it began i didn't i wasn't happy about it i didn't i don't i still don't know how i feel about sports being back in this moment as a model for us as we as a society uh, yeah. here in the united states let's be clear are failing in a lot of ways around covid but i also i had like i had the moment where i was like do do i tweet about this like do i tell anybody other than my close friends and i'm actually watching this thing like do i want other people's judgment because if they judge me for this. I would like, I get it because I'm judging myself right now and I chose not to for a while, but then I feel this, I actually feel a moral obligation to support women's sports whenever it's out there. Uh, We can talk about this more, but Kavitha and I have lots to say about the Olympics and, and mega events and all that sort of stuff. And I went last year to the Women's World Cup and I did feel myself, I loved it. I went to the first two weeks and I went to five different cities in France and it was amazing. Everything about it was amazing. And I just still, though, I though justified it in my head. I have all these conflicted feelings about mega events. Devon is friends with Jules Boykoff, who Most writes certainly. deeply on this. He's in the book talking about this. And, and I just was like, well, Women's World Cup is not as bad as the Men's <laughs> World Cup because it's a smaller event. And they didn't have to act like I was doing that kind of work for myself so that I didn't have to consider if that was even a thing. And I don't actually know the answer to like the impact of the world cup in France. Cause I don't want to. So I'm admitting that to you, Devon. I, I don't know I, if I said that out loud anywhere.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I got you. I got you here. I got you here. What about you, Kavita?
2: <laughs> I mean, yeah, Jessica and I can talk for ages about how awful the Olympics are, but how much we love them. Um, <laughs> So, yeah. Um, and I agree. Like I had the same when sports restarted. I didn't think the NBA bubble would work. I'm glad it has. Um, I didn't think it was responsible to bring sports back in, in general. I still don't really think, especially the way that baseball is doing it, the way that the NFL is planning to do their season, not in a bubble, it's responsible. And also just the messaging, I thought, was just wrong when we're still trying to get Americans to take this disease seriously. and. and yeah to understand that a little bit of sacrifice needs to happen. But, man, I've loved watching these (laughs) games. (laughs) Like, it's just, it's not, you know, like, baseball should not be, like, listen, Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, which is my home state, my hometown, had to, like, retroactively allow the Mets and the Yankees to break the state's uh, travel Travel restrictions. If you go to states with a high COVID um, rate and you come back to New York, you are supposed to quarantine for 14 days. Obviously, the Mets and the Yankees are not doing that. And both of them play Florida teams in their divisions, like, you know, and they're not quarantining. But I've loved watching the Yankees, even though they've been awful um, recently. (laughs) But, you know, so that's a huge. That's a huge one for me recently, and I will also say, also Yankee-related, my favorite player of all time, he is my heart and my soul, and the reason that I am a sports fan is Mariano Rivera, and on the day of his Hall of Fame induction, which I was supposed to go to with my mother, um, and just the travel plans didn't work out last year, but On the day of his Hall of Fame induction, um, our good friend Bob Silverman at the Daily Beast published a piece on Mariano's Trump-leaning politics. And it was devastating for me to read. And I sent him a text and I was like, I'm glad you did this work. This work is important. Don't stop doing the work could you have published it a day later? Like, cause I just <laughs> wanted to watch the ceremony. Yeah. Right. And I did, and I still loved it. And I still love him, even though I, you know, on opening day of when baseball restarted, he, he was at the white house on the white house lawn, like, and, and it's so painful for me to have to reconcile those two things. But, um, but I'm still always probably going to love him. Um, I can't erase all of those memories. And again, it's just so like he and those Yankee teams are so foundational to my sports fandom. And so much of what we explore in this book is how sports fandom is foundational to our identities. So it's really hard. It's really hard to break away from them.
1: That makes me think about, I grew up with Bobby Bowden as the coach of the Florida State football team and grew up just thinking he was the best, thing that has ever happened the nice old white guy who coaches a team i can remember being at fsu my husband and i this is like the weird but we took a golf class which yeah. like whatever and we were out i know i know you think whatever you want about I was that, terrible no, at no. It. that is I just didn't. a very
2: like you went to college in florida you had a golf class <laughs> yeah i don't
1: even know what you're doing aaron was way better at it than i will ever be but <laughs> we would be out there and bobby bowden would like show up to like be on the, and I remember like going up to him and talking to him and he was so nice to me and all this sort of stuff. And over the last five to 10 years, like it's been a real reckoning for me to go back, even in the work that I did around gendered violence, like he was bad on that when he was a coach there. Like I have yeah. trouble with choices he made then. And then of course he's, you know, stumping for, for Trump now and having to really, it's exactly what you said, Kavitha, like, I don't. It's very hard for me to see it. And I don't, I don't know what to do with the memories and feelings that I feel when I think back on how I used to imagine him versus what I know of him now. And I don't know if I'll ever reconcile those two things.
0: First and foremost, I'm so glad that you all are here spilling the beans on the Wake Up and Win podcast. <laughs> but but even beyond that, I think it's very important to do so and, and be transparent and all of that. Because, you know, for me, I, I mean, I think there's a such thing as an expert critic. I don't think there's a such thing as a perfect critic. And we all do critical work here in our own separate ways. But doesn't necessarily mean we have to be perfect in doing so, nor does that kind of take away from um, some of the validity of us being critical in our work that we do kind of have these gray areas. So, you know, I think it's very important, Jessica, you're somebody, you know, I've given you your flowers about this before, but even the topic of, you know, rape, which you, which you cover quite heavily and heavily are one of the major voices here in this country when it comes to that, and especially the way it intersects with sports, you know, I've had a certain outlook on that when I was a college athlete as a college athlete that, doesn't align at all with what my outlook on that is now as an adult, you know, beyond college and really, you know, that point in time when I actually met you and got to have the great conversation that you and I got to have. And I challenged you in some areas just on- Yeah, I still think on, about it. It yeah, was yeah. an important
1: conversation for me.
0: Absolutely, yeah. because you know it was just kind of how I came up. Some of the things that I grew up around yeah. weren't necessarily right, but I just hadn't really unlearned them yet. So I think it's really cool to be able to have this conversation with you two and really kind of find out about your gray areas even amongst the great work, like I said, that you laid out, and I would consider to be a moral compass um, for sports fans. So make sure you all go cop the book, because um, it, it gets deep. It gets heavy. But yeah, I just think it was really cool to have had that moment here. But um, moving right along, I want to talk about, um, and not to be narcissistic here, but the chapter that I was actually a part of, <laughs> and it was titled Consuming Sports Media – even if you don't look like the people on TV. Um, First and foremost, I want to thank you both so much because this is the first book that I've ever even been asked to write a statement for and to know that I actually made the cut and had my little (laughs) statement in the book. Oh, man, it was it melted my little heart over here to read that and see that. Um, Well, you're the
1: perfect person for it, Devon, because you are someone who was like, I don't see a lot of people that remind me of me and the media that I consume. And like, look at you now. Like, I met you when you were in college. Yeah, you did. I'm just so impressed. (laughs) Like, you went out and just made the media that you wanted to see.
0: Absolutely. you fit perfectly. Yeah, for sure. And kind of piggybacking off of what you just said there, I loved how you guys formulated that chapter by asking people that are underrepresented in the media space for their statements in this particular chapter. So you can kind of hear this range of answers that many people who are of color or you know are women or uh you know are just underrepresented in general within the sports media uh sphere you got to hear from them directly and what it is they had to say Cause, so can you two kind of speak more to that and how that came about like in your own conversations behind the scenes that hey with this chapter we should get people from all types of underrepresented um you know places and spaces and have them come speak to their experiences here in this book
2: Hmm. I'm pretty sure it was Jessica's idea to do the statements instead of doing um, a, a, a traditional chapter the way that all of our other chapters are are laid out. And the statements, you know, and we didn't really even ask targeted questions, right? It was re- like really open-ended. And, you know, I think especially because, you know, the whole point of the chapter is people who don't you know, look and sound like everybody else in sports media. So those, like, those people are also going to have completely different and a completely wide range of reactions and thoughts to this. So having something be open-ended and just having them like, their words be able to speak for themselves, I think was was really important to that chapter.
1: Yeah, it ends up, it's mainly, it's like an oral history. Right yeah. of this moment um, for people who are under, underrepresented groups within sports media. Part of it, though, was just a practical thing. Like when it came time, it was like, okay, well, we want all these different voices, and how do we? How do you literally write all these different voices in the sort of standard format that we have the other chapters? And you start to it gets hard to keep up with all the different voices as a reader. So there was a practical idea behind it, and then it was like, okay, so who do we want to ask? And we realized like to really get the breadth that we would need in order to represent all the underrepresented groups, yeah. it was going to take a lot of voices. So you know, there was an organic nature to it within like the writing process. But then just when it came time to figure out who to ask, it was like, well, we got to have South Asian voices. We got to have non-binary voices. Like it was like, let's make sure that all these, as much as we can represent yeah. all these different groups so that we do get this wide range and, So it just, yeah, it kind of just ended up that way. That was the only way to make sense of it, I think.
2: And I think for, you know, all the other, it's a really good table setter for all of the other chapters in the book because, you know, what we're really getting at with with this chapter is that it matters who is presenting stories and news to you. It matters when it comes to the framing and the narratives and just the stories that are chosen. Um, So, you know, when you only have white men telling you, talking to you about sports, you're only going to get that singular narrative, um, around sports. So it was really important, um, to show the breadth that can exist in order to tackle all of the other issues that we do lay out in the book.
0: Yeah, no, like I said, conceptually, I just think that was a very well put together chapter. And I'll be honest with you, I'm glad that I got weaved into that chapter rather than any other <laughs> chapter, not speaking negatively about any other chapter, but like I said, <laughs> we'll I it. just I just loved kind of the creativity and how you put that chapter together because I really didn't know, especially like I said, some of it can be narcissistic, but you know, since you've asked me for that statement a while back, Jessica, and just kind of sitting in the land of unknown, like am I going to be in a book? am I not going to be in the book? There's been a hundred different ways that I've actually looked at how that quote could be placed in a book that I have yet to read, that I don't really know all the directions that yeah, this book is going to go in. Us. yeah, I really did, yeah. and so to see that that was the way things worked out and being able to be a part of that long list of folks that are underrepresented like myself, which is something that obviously isn't really the case in my day-to-day career, I think that was special for me to be a part of and say that I was a part of because I don't really get that opportunity in my actual day-to-day work that I do. So it was just cool all the way around there conceptually. Um, That's so
1: funny. Cause my memory of that chapter was collecting all the stuff and we had it all. And I feel like for months and months it was just kind of piled together mm-hmm. and it was like, we'll figure out what to do with it. Like, I just feel like we were like, we'll figure out what to do with it. We'll figure out what to do with it. And it really didn't come together in the tight form And Casey again was very helpful in sort of getting it to its final form. But yeah, I'm so glad that it comes off the way that it does because I can rem- it was a real struggle to make sure that it wasn't too much, but yeah. that everyone was included. And doing that sort of dance was, it was like a last minute sort of put together and so thrilling to hear you say Yeah,
0: that. yeah, it was powerful. <laughs> it was powerful. Um, but I do want to know, you know, obviously, like I said, you, you both do very critical work. Um, obviously you put this entire book together. So, you know, you came up with, you know, a lot of the ideas and the things that you wanted to talk about and cover. Um, but I want to know what you learned most from this book that you may not have learned initially, or you may have learned it, you know, as you're writing and researching and doing all the things that you have to do to come up with the final product as you all did last week. Um, what caught you off guard? You know, what did you learn?
2: My, my two... I have one thing that I learned that I didn't know before and then I have a takeaway. So my takeaway was not to be judgmental like we talked about earlier, right? Just after talking to so many of these fans realizing just how wide the range of experiences and how different the dilemma is for everybody and that that's okay and Um, you know, one of, one of the things that we hope people take away from this book is being able to just sit with that discomfort, the discomfort of that dilemma. Um, on a tangible thing that I learned, um, and Jessica worked on the Olympics chapter, I had known, you know, I'm a sports business reporter by trade. So I had known all of the, Devastation that the Olympics do to cities and stadiums and and you know localities and all of that and the way that the Olympics are used for propaganda and and all of that. I did not know just how much the Olympics um, caused the militarization of the police departments. That was something that I learned to the extent that I did um, in reading how Jessica put that chapter together and you know the work of our friend Jules Boykoff that literally cities that host the Olympics have their police department armed to be Olympic security and then they don't de-arm them. They don't disarm them after that happens. You are literally like the Olympics cause an influx of military grade weapons into the cities that host the Olympics. And that was mind blowing to me. And and I've said this in almost every interview that we've done. I will always bring that up now. I feel like that is a thing people need to Mm -hmm. know.
1: Yeah, I totally second Kavitha on the fact that I learned how hard it is, like, not to be as judgmental, but even to tell people what they should be doing. So we initially, this book was called How to Love Sports When They Don't Love You Back, and we dropped the how-to because it was like, well, shit, like, can can we tell people how to do this? Like, this yeah. that's a, actually an incredibly difficult thing to do, Yeah. and who are we to tell everyone how to make these personal decisions for themselves, but for sure... For sure the thing that I learned that I did not know but that I was really sure I knew a ton about was doping. I went into that thinking doping is bad and we know it's bad and I'm going to I I don't even know what I thought the chapter would look like when I started out and then I started doing research and I was like what is doping? Like how do we define this? This feels really arbitrary. I don't even understand like of the, just like all the other things the people in charge of doping there's corruption there. Like it felt that's the chapter where we ended up writing sports are made up because it's so arbitrary. There are some really concrete things that you can, you can talk about with doping as far as things that harm people's bodies and all that sort of stuff. But when it comes to like, what counts as doping, who gets punished, how long they get punished, all those sorts of things are arbitrary and they often hurt the more vulnerable people. Right. we see a lot of this around, The language of intersex or non-binary athletes. And so that chapter, and I also, the other thing about it is I was really sure that I understood all the stuff around steroids and baseball. And I learned so fast that I didn't know anything about it. (laughs) I had such bad knowledge of it, which is, speaks to like how we talk about these things within our own society. Cause the one thing that really got me when I was studying Balco was that there were a ton of football players implicated. And I had no idea i thought that was just baseball and i was like wow we as a society cared almost nothing about the fact that football players were using whatever drugs were coming out of Alco, but we cared so much about baseball which again just speaks to all the arbitrary stuff around it so that chapter just like blew my mind so it was a real it was a real journey with that one
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Now, to transition away from the book here a little bit, because us three got to share a moment before we got on this podcast about our appreciation of all being podcasters. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, Jessica, you're the co-host of the Burn It All Down podcast, which is a feminist sports podcast. Kavita, you host The Lead, which is the national podcast for The Athletic. Obviously, um, we know how prominent of a sports publication The Athletic is. But can you speak to sort of within your careers obviously you know you write you write articles for a living you write books for a living you make appearances for a living you do all of these things but speak to the significance of the space that each of your particular podcasts play to your careers.
2: Well, and I apologize I I'm in a dog-friendly hotel in Vermont so if you've been hearing the barking <laughs> it's going
0: no worries from the I can't do anything about that <laughs> You're good you're good you're good
2: Um so I had never podcasted before I joined The Lead um before I became host of The Lead and this is my full-time job now. I haven't written anything but the book, basically, um, in the last calendar year. Wow. And, and it's weird, because I am a writer. Like, yeah. I, you know, um, but it has been such an incredible learning experience, being able to tell stories in an audio form. The, the premise of our show, we basically tell people we are the New York Times, the daily, but for sports. Yeah. Um, you know, we do deep dives into, like, very sound-rich um stories every day and it's a mix of like the biggest story that's happening that week or that or a couple of days before um and you know just long form you know incredible storytelling that our great roster of writers at the athletic put put puts out um and it's really taught me just how different storytelling in audio is from writing and my writing brain has such primacy um, much more s- over my my audio brain. So shout out to my incredible team of producers um, and sound mixers who <laughs> who help me with that. The sound mixers are are very key. Um, but yeah, it has it has been it's been such a learning experience to be able to tell these stories in much shorter, more more concise ways than I would have written them, um, and and also just be able to you know kind of provide this immersive experience you know we we partner at the athletic with a company called wondery and wondery prides themselves on immersive podcasts and really trying to bring the listener into these stories with you know tape from you know the game from 1992 if we're talking about something you know like that kind of thing um and it's 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 really been it's been a journey and you know the show keeps evolving and we keep getting better at it, and I I, I hope people uh, go listen to it now, and I hope that we're around for years to come. Yeah. People should go
1: listen to it. I listen to it. Yeah. Um, I'm a huge podcast fan in general. I listen to a lot of them. I've really been listening to a lot in quarantine, which I know some people said that that's hard for them, but I live in a small house with two people that I deeply love, but also I can put my AirPods in and not hear anybody else. <laughs> I love them. I do love them. Yeah. Uh,
0: we believe you.
2: Jessica has the house to herself for the first time in like ever right now. So. Oh, well, wow. <laughs> right now. It was only earlier today. Uh, I have since uh, shared it. And I can
1: actually hear my son through the wall. So I hope you guys can. We're good. We're
0: a, good. Family-friendly <laughs> podcast here.
1: <laughs> yeah, he's yelling. He gets very emotional and I don't know where he gets that from. Uh, <laughs> but burn it all down. We're like three and a half years in and I feel like we're still learning so much about podcasting in general. But I will say... So I, I co-host it with four other women, Lindsay Gibbs, Amira Rose Davis, Shereen Ahmed, and Brenda Elsie, and they're so smart. And I just think every week doing this podcast, we we're a weekly podcast, and we talk about topical stuff in the news. They're just so brilliant. And they're most of the time, I'm just kind of amazed that I get to sit in on those conversations. And so I've just learned so much that that group it's so good too in, in themselves being inclusive, like trying to have a really broad umbrella under which we talk about all sorts of things. And so it has definitely informed my writing in very real ways over the last three and a half years. Like I can, there's stuff I can point to in my writing and be like, ah, oh, Amira said that one day. Oh, Shireen's the reason that's in there. Like yeah. it's, it has definitely made me a better thinker. And writer, and I'm just really thankful all the time that I get to hang out with those people and listen to the stuff that they come up with. Sometimes it just blows me out of the water the way that they think about the world.
0: Yeah, definitely. I I love it, man. Because like I said, I'm a fan of the sport as well, as I know the both of you are. And because it is fairly new and because like you've got so many people in this space, especially when you think of maybe like from a career standpoint, how long they've been in sports media. You have people that have been in sports media for 30 years that are just now getting into the space of podcasting. And then you have people that have only maybe been in the industry for a couple to a few years that the beginning of their careers is, oh, I got to have a podcast or I got to launch a podcast. So to see kind of the range and the blend of all these people with, you know, experiences all over the place, having to come to this one space, all as kind of fairly new members of this particular space and not real true experts of the space. I love to be able to hear from other podcasters, you know, what it means to them and doing their own work. So greatly appreciate you too for that. Well,
2: um and what I really love about about Jessica's show, you know, our show, um, the lead is storytelling. It's not it's not conversation. What I really love about Jessica's show, and you know, the five of them are incredibly incredibly smart. So this isn't um, surprising but it turns on its head the kind of conversations that you think of when you think of sports talk radio essentially <laughs> it's not yelling it's not hot takes it's not a bunch of dudes just trying to fire each other up like these are meaningful conversations and i think for so long we don't we haven't given sports the respect <laughs> that mm. that they deserve mm. like we Jessica and i have talked about this and Jessica is a you know a a very accomplished academic we d- we haven't given sports the academic treatment, you know, and I know that that can come across boring or whatever, but I just mean, like, we don't really talk about sports in an intellectual capacity. And there's so much to talk about in that. And, you know, one of the things that we did with this book was using sports just as a lens to talk about the world. Right. Um, And, and I really appreciate that Jessica's podcast, um, you know, allows for allows the space for those kinds of conversations. And we are starting to see a lot more, shows like that that isn't just you know two two people who are going to fundamentally disagree on everything yelling at each other
0: <laughs> yeah no that's, that's funny that's, there are ahead. times
2: where we're like we should have more disagreements
1: <laughs>
0: probably the show.
1: <laughs> so like we feel that like there's that idea of like well there should be some kind of conflict and there sometimes but yeah that's thank you Kavita. that's very kind
0: got, like I said, that goes back to, you know, having nuance between sport conversations. It doesn't always have to be debate, debate form, but, um, just because it's not debate form doesn't mean it has any less value. And don't get me wrong. I'm a guy I've had, I've co-hosted a sports radio show before myself. So I know what it's like to debate for three hours a day, five days a week. It, <laughs> it's fun. It, it, it's, like, it's yeah, fun. It's fun for sure. it sports, is. Right? Like, it, It's definitely, I would <laughs> yeah. definitely say it's the best job that I've ever had that I could say that mm-hmm. I've ever had. Maybe not well, so best So much plan, of the fun about sports <laughs> is being
2: able to be irrational with, you know what should be no consequence right yeah. like if you're arguing over who who is the greatest basketball player of all time LeBron James or Michael Jordan you can yell at each other until you're blue in the face and and you can be irrational in your in your arguments and you know there's no negative like real negative consequence yeah there's that, no right? material change for anybody
0: yeah. Exactly. right for sure lastly um before we before we get you out of here um what would you guys say, you ladies say about um, writing a book to a young aspiring author like myself? <laughs> Are we getting is, a book, Devon? I, I, don't <laughs> I don't know.
1: I hope so. But, but it um, sounded good. <laughs> it did. I mean, it's hard. Like I'm not going to lie. Like writing a book is is hard. But I think there is something about a book, and this has been true for the the two that I've written. I love thinking about that. That's so wild to me. When I left grad school without my PhD and my dissertation finished, it was like, I'm a loser. Um, (laughs) But in both cases, there's something about taking all that time to write on one topic and seeing it all together. Because even with this book, you know, each chapter is a different theme. And we wrote each chapter one at a time, and we split it up, and we each, you know... Took different ones, but when you put it all together and you're working on flow and you're trying to get it from beginning to end and like reading it all at once, which we read this book over and over and over again. When you do edits, (laughs) you read your book over and over and over again. Yeah. And I was like, there's something so much more impactful about all of it together, like thinking about all of these issues in sports at the same time. And I love that about a book, just how much you can say, because we obviously love to talk. Uh, And so it's hard work. You do have to do it little piece by little piece and then eventually it adds up into a bigger thing and you need a good group around you to get it done. But it is it is so, the feeling is so good when you see it all together and you get to think about these things in such a big way.
2: Yeah, exactly that. It's a lot of work. It's very hard work. I, I, Even before we signed our book deal, I had always wanted to write a book, but the thought of it was extremely daunting to me. Um, and like Jessica said, you do it piece by piece and somehow it all comes together and you have a book. Um, and you honestly, like, and I believe this in no matter what kind of writing you're doing, editors are so important and having a good editor on a book, um, Casey, again, like we would not have had this done without him. Um, but yeah, so it's so important and it is just extremely satisfying when you see it come together, when you see it out in the world. It's still wild to us that people have read our book. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, it's really um, weird. Yeah. We've done a couple of these podcasts and 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 people have read passages from the book to us. And on the one hand, we have read our own book 17 times. Like yeah, um, yeah. and on the other hand, we cannot for the life of us remember half of what we actually wrote in the book. You're like, oh, that sounds good. Sure, we yeah. wrote That's that. Who wrote that? Yeah. Um, so to hear people reading our you, you know, your words back to you is just this incredible feeling.
0: Absolutely. Well, where can people find the book and and purchase the book at? Where can they follow you, subscribe to your podcast, all the things?
1: The book is anywhere you buy books. So wherever you would normally go, if it's your indie in town, if it's Amazon, because you have a Kindle,
2: any of those places will work. If you want a signed copy, you can go to book people because we did... We signed so many of those book plates. Um, and I apologize if you get one of the like the ones toward the end of the pile where I just started to do a K and then some scribbles. You, like, forget how to sign your signature when you you're really in the middle do. of it. It's a yeah. really weird, crazy thing. It,
1: but because Book People's here in Austin and because the press is here in Austin,
2: there that's the place where you can get the signed ones.
0: Solid, solid.
2: And I am, uh, I'm on Twitter, at Kavitha Davidson, and you can – you can subscribe to The Lead on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, I'm on Twitter and Instagram
1: and Facebook at Jessica W. Luther. And Burn It All Down is all, all the places that people get podcasts. So go subscribe.
0: Absolutely. Well, once again, before I let you two off the hook or off the Zoom or whatever we're calling it these days, thank you so, so much for allowing me to have some you know sentimental sentimental value in regards to this book and being able to give my statement and and say my little piece, you know? Um, but no, it's truly something dope, you know? I don't even think I've told my mom yet and I think she's gonna be really happy when she hears that I was in a book. I kind of been waiting to talk about it because I want to promote it all with the podcast and <laughs> all that good stuff, but I'll definitely be putting it out there to everybody because like I said, for one, I'm grateful. For two, um, I did get to read the book. I was able to get a copy of it and it was an easy, nice flow. And like I said, for fans, you know, although we always will get caught up sort of in our own teams and some of our mishaps when it comes to being a fan. I mean, I'm an Oakland – well, now Las Vegas Raiders. I say <laughs> so that, we, I can't say it either, man. It's but totally I'm a Raiders big. fan where, you know, we're we're a pretty hardcore <laughs> fan base, I would say. You know, and I grew up – you know, we, my family, we're season ticket holders. So, you know, that is mm-hmm. a huge part of my culture and my sport culture and, you know, what shaped me as a fan ultimately – of sport in general and uh you know being able to have this book to kind of piggyback off of when sometimes maybe you need to check yourself and check your fandom don't mean you got to quit being a fan but sometimes you got to have it hey you got to check yourself a bit and so um I really thought that you know this book really did that for sports fans so congratulations once again and thank you so much thank
1: Thank you you so much
0: Indeed, on that note, we will leave you all the only way that we know how, and that is to stay woke and go win.